This is Robert Furrow, and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A, where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. If you have a question that you would like to ask, submit it to the comment section below, write the word question in front of it, and then write it out and reread it a couple of times. Make sure that it makes sense. Our first question comes today from uh, uh, at the end of our last Q&A. I need to get my, uh, my do not disturb on here. Uh, my first question comes today from our last Q&A near the end. We had talked about one of the proof texts for Calvinism, and we were I was asked a question about, does God choose before the foundations of the world, or does man have free will? And I showed that in the beginning of that passage, in context, which is everything, that it says, to those who are faithful in Christ, he has predestined before the foundations of the world. Now, now, he, that's the, the context. He says it then, a few verses later, he says they were chosen before the foundations of the world, that they were faithful in Christ, and a few verses later, chosen in the, before the foundations of the world. So those who were chosen are those who were faithful in Christ, not randomly people who were unilaterally chosen by God. I had said, if you guys have questions about another uh, verse that is used often by those who are Calvinists uh, that go ahead and ask the question, and we'll take a look at those verses. So later on, Empress Kimberly had asked about the passage where it says that God has chosen some vessels for dishonor, and that's what I want to look at today. I want to say, first of all, that when we're talking about Calvinists, we're talking about Christians. Now, we don't know that every Calvinist is Christian, but we don't know that every you know, Methodist, Lutheran, or Calvary Chapel are Christian. But we don't throw Calvinists out of the kingdom because they don't believe the same thing that we believe. They believe in God by faith. They have put their trust in him, and that's what brings salvation. But so many Calvinists today are the extreme form of Calvinism. John MacArthur, John Piper, R.C. Sprawl. Uh, they believe in determinism, that God determines everything that will happen. Literally, uh, changing your will or forcing your will to desire the very things that you're doing so you can make no other choice, not only in the matter of salvation, but in all matters of your life. And so in this passage, Paul is in Romans chapter 9 is talking about a potter who makes one vessel for honor and one for dishonor, and that the potter has the power over the clay to do whatever he wants to do with the clay. This is an analogy of God having sovereignty, the right to do what he wants to do. And we know that God is always good. God is always loving. God will always do what is right. The rest of the Bible tells us that. And so if you read this out of context, again, like Ephesians chapter one, if you don't ask the question, who is he saying is chosen before the foundations of the world? Earlier on, the faithful in Christ. So here, if you don't read it in context, you do violence to the text. And that's almost always the case. Take any text out of context and you do violence to it, especially if you're just trying to get across your point and you're not reading the entire context. And oftentimes Calvinists will not read the end of this chapter, which tells you how one is chosen for honor and one is chosen for dishonor. But I wanna start reading this where they would read it, okay? So this is verse 21 of <clears throat> Romans chapter nine. It says, does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel of honor and another of dishonor? What if God wanting to show his wrath to make his power known endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath? 
And I want to point out, first of all, look at the word long-suffering there. God endured with long-suffering the vessels of wrath. Long-suffering would be, is that choosing someone unilaterally before the foundations of the world to be, be damned and condemned forever to hell? Is that long-suffering? And then choosing another person unilaterally to be chosen to be given eternal life or to receive his love? So right away, even in the text, we begin to get an idea that maybe we're not just talking about unilaterally choosing, oh, I'm going to choose you for hell and you for heaven. Something else might be going on. But he is indeed choosing one for honor and one for wrath. He goes on to say that he, um, in, uh, that he endured with much long-suffering the vessel of wrath, which we would expect from a God of love, because love is long-suffering, prepared for destruction, that he might make known his riches of his glory in vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for his glory. So God beforehand had prepared people who would be vessels of glory. It goes on to say, even us, whom he called, which we know that God calls. No one can come to the Father unless you are drawn or called by God. Not for the Jews only, but also for the Gentiles. See now, here's where it begins to get a little interesting because we see that he's not talking about unilaterally choosing one random person to be chosen for hell and one random person to be chosen for eternity, but it's in the context of a conversation about whether or not it is, it is Israel that's saved because they are Jewish. He's writing, this whole thing is because he's writing to the nation of Israel that think that they are saved because they are descendants of Abraham. And God's showing that he changed it. It's no longer a descendant of Abraham that is saved, but it's those who believe by faith. Now, let's just read this on a little bit further. It'll become clear. And as he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. That would be the Gentiles. Jews could be saved by faith as well, but he's going to call his people that are not his people, uh, who was not, and it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they shall be called the sons of the living God. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. Now, the Gentiles are going to be called as people because they're going to believe, but Israel is going to reject. And later on in Romans, just two chapters later, he's going to say blindness in part has happened in Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And now look at the limits he talks about with Israel. The Gentiles have been enlightened, but now there are limits on those in Israel because of this blindness. <clears throat> blindness. It says, through the number of the children of Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant will be saved. So not all who are Israel will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut short in righteousness, because the Lord will make short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabbath had left us a seed, we have would become like Sodom and we would have become like Gomorrah. So in other words, God chooses that there will be a remnant in Israel and will be faithful to his promises he made for them, but that God has brought blindness to Israel for a time until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. So now we see he's not talking about unilateral choosing. He's talking about the nation of Israel and Gentiles. That's the context. Now listen to what he says here. This tells us exactly what he's talking about. What shall we say then? that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. It's those who believe by faith who are chosen as vessels of honor. That's never changed. 
even in chapter 10, he'll go on to talk about believing and receiving, and you're not going to be able to come unless you hear. So if you have faith, you are a vessel of honor. In other words, God chose before the foundations of the world that anyone who would believe in him would be saved. That's why it says Abraham believed and it was accounted to him as righteousness. And that's why faith is not a meritorious work. We are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. If faith were works, that verse wouldn't say that. And so we see that the righteous come by faith. But what about those that don't have faith? Verse 31, but Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith. It's nothing about God before the foundations of the world choosing one person to be damned and another person to be saved, but God before the foundations of the world choosing to reveal light to men, to make provision. And when people receive the light that they have been given and the provision that God has given them, then they are vessels of honor. And even if it's Israel and they don't come by faith, then they will become vessels of dishonor. So it says, why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it was written by the works of the law, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone. This is Israel, as it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Isn't that astounding? The very passage where they say that what matters is not whether or not you believe, but whether or not you've been chosen by God before the foundations of the world unilaterally and then given life, one unable to be saved and another not able to be saved. The very passage says those who have life are those who believe, those who are vessels of dishonor are those who do not believe, and that yet you can believe in him. Again, I'll read that last line again. This is a quote from the Old Testament. Behold, I lay in Zion, a stumbling stone, a rock of offense. Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. He's talking about faith and he's talking about believing. When you take it out of its context, when you try to make the argument Calvinism, as if a Paul were writing to Arminians and having taken a Calvinist position. That's the way they read it. There was no Arminians in that day. There was no Calvinist in those days. And the gospel says clearly, um, oftentimes you will hear a Calvinist say, I believe in Calvinism because the Bible teaches it. But then they don't defend it. And if they do defend it, they defend it with very small portions taken out of context. They have about five or six texts that they go to to support what they believe. And when we go to each one of those texts, we find that just like in Romans 9, when it's talking about the nation of Israel, and when it says, Esau I have loved and Jacob I have hated, that's a quote from the Old Testament. And Esau represents a nation and Jacob represents a nation. And the Bible tells us that God began to hate man, that God that God will love them no more, but God began to, began to hate those who do evil and wickedness and that God will love them no more. So God loved everybody all of the time. He always did from the very beginning. But when men begin to choose evil and to walk down violent roads, then God begins to hate them and will put his love on them no more. And I had shown this verse as we talked about this last week, and this is a very important verse. It is, and let me put it up here for you. This is Hosea 9.15. And their wickedness is in Gilgal, for there I hated them. Now the Bible says, for God so loved the world. So, and God is love. 
and the definition of love is 1 Corinthians 13. So how could God hate them here then? Because of the evil of their deeds. It's because of what they've done, not because of who they are. I will drive them from my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebellious. So now he has loved them, but he will love them no more. Now that comes into play clearly in Daniel chapter nine, when he says, Esau, Jacob, I have loved, but Esau, I have hated. And that he said this before he was born. And that's because God knows the future and has not set aside his foreknowledge, but knows standing outside of time, what we do and what we go through. And as I said last week, I would love to talk about this more. If you have other passages that you're wondering about, I, um, I also want to, before we go on to other questions, talk about interacting with Calvinists because it can be very difficult. This is my experience. Um, I certainly don't want to paint all Calvinists the same. And I don't want to say that you, you know, you'll have difficulty with every Calvinist that you face. But my experience has been that they will turn and attack pretty easily. I was talking to someone a few years ago, ran into him in Starbucks. We started talking about Calvinism. I started telling him some of the things I'm sharing with you. And out of frustration, he says to me, you know what, if you read the book of Ephesians, then you'd be a Christian. And I was like, I assure you I've read the book of Ephesians. I, I, I assure you, I've taught through it. And I didn't become a Calvinist when I taught through the book because the things that they look at and teach them and they have seen they just look at that passage that says God chose them before the foundations of the world. And they go, see, God chose for the foundations of the world before anybody was ever born. And don't look at who it was written to, the faithful in Christ Jesus. And yes, because we are faithful in Christ Jesus, he chose us before the foundations of the world because God knows, and that's what predestination is all about. All right, so Kimberly, I hope you got all of that. If you have another question about it, then I'd love to do it. I know last week we talked some about it. And um, some were saying um, that when it comes to Calvinism, you just got to wait till the end. It will all pan out in the end. I do not believe that. And I, neither do I believe that about the, the rapture of the church or, and where that's going to take place. I believe we should dive into the word of God. And if you come to a different conclusion, then that's fine. And if you are a Calvinist listening to this, I'm not trying to persuade you. I'm putting out a defense for what I believe the word of God says, for clearly keeping it in context. And I'm not attacking Calvinists. The Bible says the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach those that are in opposition. And so good, solid responses to the things that I'm saying, showing where they're wrong will be gladly accepted. But oftentimes, I have discovered that's hard for them to do. They turn into insults and, you know, in debates. If you, if you have to turn and start insulting the one you're debating, then you've lost the debate. The debate is not about the guys giving the debate. The de debate's about the hearers. The guys giving the debate are not going to change their mind. You're not, very rarely do you have a gotcha moment in debates, sometimes, but very rarely. It's about the people listening. And when someone, when you hear someone turn and attack them, well, you guys are all like this, or you're all Phlegians, or you're a synergist, or you're, and they start to attack, not listening to what you're saying, then you know that that debate's been lost, at least when it comes to the topic that they're covering then. Doesn't make one right or wrong, 
but they don't have any answers because now they're attacking them. I have no desire to attack those that are Calvinist or to even try to persuade you to not be a Calvinist, but I want to inform those that you may be trying to win over to be Calvinist that there's not a lot of validity in the verses that are used to say that. All right, so thank you very much. I appreciate it, uh, um, uh, Kimberly. Uh, and we have a question from Andre, and Andre is first again. He gets online, he gets that question in. When Jesus makes intercession for us, it is, is it a one-time intercession for the individual believer, or is it continual intercession? Well, let's look at Hebrews 7.25, which is the verse that um, Andre has put in here. And I think it's the one that says he ever lives to make intercession for us which is amazing. Um, let's get there. Hebrews 7, 5. And it says, um, let me put it up on the screen here for you. Is that right? Oh, 725. Well, no wonder it didn't make any sense. I'm reading it going, oh, it doesn't look like the right one to me. It's also to save to the uttermost um, since he always lives. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is a great verse. Great verse. Okay, here we go. Put it up on the screen for you. It says there in verse 25, therefore he also able to save to the uttermost. Now the question, ah, the question right before this was talking about the weakness of the law, that the law was weak, but Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. The law can't save you. That's why people who want to keep the law have problems. But it says, therefore he is able to save to the uttermost who, who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So the question by Andre is, is this a one-time, is this a one-time intercession or is this something that he is continually doing it? Well, Andre, it seems as we take a look at it, that he's talking about those who are coming to Christ and he is making intercession for them. There's no way that we can come to the Son unless the Father draws us, and we have to have God doing the work that God's doing within each one of us. And so the Lord, that's not the one I wanted, and so the Lord is the one who is doing that work inside of us. And um, God is omnipresent. God is all-powerful. God is aware of my prayers when I pray them. So he could be making intercession for me, always living to make intercession. And that's the way that I've always read it. Now, if you're just trying to, if you're just trying to prove a point from that passage, therefore he also able to save to the uttermost, talk about those who are being saved, those who come to him, um, to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them, then we're talking about at salvation, the moment of salvation, making intercession for them. So the argument could be made that this doesn't say that he's always making intercession, but he lives to make intercession, and the context is those who are being saved. Uh, but I would not wipe out the fact that he can continue to intercede for us and does. He always lives to make intercession, and that he's interceding for each one of us. All right, hope that makes sense. Um, Andre, uh, you can um, have a follow-up question on that if you would like to. Um, great, uh, great question, by the way. Just think, if Jesus is, is praying for us, then how can, can we not stand our ground? How can we not end up walking with him and being in victory? So we have a question from Albert. Albert says, 
Uh, good to see you, Albert, by the way. <clears throat> Pastor, do you believe decreasing birth rates around the world are both a judgment of God against abortion and mercy because of the tribulation period is drawing near? Thank you for all you do. Thank you, Albert. I appreciate that. All right, so two different parts to this question. Let's take them one at a time. Uh, so first of all, do I believe that decreasing birth rates around the world are both a judgment from God against abortion and mercy uh, for the tribulation period is drawing near? So do I believe that the decreasing birth rate is both mercy because not as many people would have to face the tribulation period and also judgment that comes from God? Uh, I've got to think, as I look at God's interaction with the world, and we think of the decreasing birth rates in China, that they are directly connected to abortion because you could not have more than one child. Uh, other parts of the world where they are having population problems, Japan, they are not able to, to increase their, their population. Uh, in or, and, and that's gonna cause some, some difficulties and problems. And I won't go into all of the reasons why the decreasing of populations. When I was in school, I'm talking about high school, uh, we talked about how the population of the world was going to be, become overrun. And now they're talking about not being able to maintain the population, which is going to cause all kinds of problems. So could that be a judgment of God? Do I believe it's a judgment of God? Um, I think when it comes to these kind of things, Albert, what kind of things is God just letting man do and is going to use as a judgment in their lives? And what kind of thing is God causing for judgment? I try not to make a judgment call on that, but simply to say the world is in a bit of trouble because of the decreasing population. And this could very well be used by God because of abortion. And it's a result of abortion for how many, how many babies have been aborted worldwide since let's just say the early 1970s when Roe v. Wade was passed. I know it's 40 million, maybe more in, in the U.S., which is a enormous Holocaust. And so it's a result of it. And maybe that result is abortion. See, sometimes God gives us over to the sin that he's been trying to get us to stop doing. And there's destruction that comes from it. And that might be the very case that has happened around the world. Um, mercy because the tribulation is drawing near. Maybe, I hadn't really thought about that. Maybe um, and I'm trying to think biblically, is there anything that would make us think that God desires all to be saved and all to come to the knowledge of the truth. There's a fullness of the Gentiles that will come in before the tribulation period starts and, and Jerusalem is, is trampled underfoot by, um, by Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. And I do think that time has come and we're waiting for the fullness to come in. So, um, is God being merciful? Now, I'm going to say no to that, and, and here's why. Here's why I'm, what I'm thinking. I'm going to say that it's not God's desire, heart, or plan for one person to murder another person. And so God's not being merciful by allowing those babies to be murdered. That's what we, that is what God would not do. So he would not be merciful by allowing abortion and um, so there would be less people in the tribulation period. This is man's doing. It's not what God wanted. They're killing people that are in the image of God. And um, most of the time when I use the word they, I'm talking about the, uh, the um, abortion machine that's out there. 
Planned Parenthood and others. And this is just their machine that just gets going. And um, so I'm, I'm just going to finally, you know, I talked my way around it here. I, um, I'm going to say that this could be judgment from God uh, by giving them over to what they're doing with, you know, not enough people on the earth, but not mercy on the tribulation period because God would not use abortion for that. All right. That's why I, I think Albert, but again, good question. I really do appreciate it. Um, so yeah, uh, Rod has a question. Uh, when will we see, when will the Isaiah 19, 16 through 25 prophecy happen after the rapture? Um, let me see, uh, Rod, again, you know, have, means asking off the top of the head, questions off the top of the head, just knowing what the what they are. Maybe in a question, you could kind of give a little bit on what it is to maybe kind of jog the memory. Let me go there and see if I can figure it out. Isaiah 19, uh, verses, starting in verse 16. And I'm just going to pull it up on the screen. I'm going to read a little bit of it, see if I can figure it out. If I can't, I'll bail out of it and um, see if we can figure something out later on. Isaiah 19, 16, and you're asking if this prophecy will happen after the rapture when Christ is reigning. All right, let me go ahead and bring you up on screen here. So 16 says, um, in that day, Egypt will be like a woman and will be afraid and fear, where are we at? And fear because of the waving of the hand of the Lord of hosts which he waves over it. And the land of Judah will be a terror to Egypt. Everyone who makes mention of it will be afraid of himself because of the counsel of the Lord of hosts, which he has determined against it. So God's planned it. Egypt, Assyria, and Israel blessed. In that day, five cities in the land of Egypt will be spoke, speak the, uh, will speak the language of Canaan and swear by the Lord of hosts and will be called the city of destruction. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt. And um, yeah, Rod, I'm going to have to bail out on this now. Um, I'm just not having enough of my memory kind of shaken here to be able to speak in any intelligent way about it. And I, and I just don't want to pretend like I know it, rattle off something that kind of makes sense. I would rather be able to take time to really look into it and see if indeed that is uh, something that we can look into. So maybe I can take a look at it and use it as a first question in a future Q&A. All right, Rod, so thank you for your question. Feel free to ask another question if you want to. Um, uh, we usually limit it to one, but since I passed on your question, then you can ask another one. Uh, so we have a question from Jari. Jari, good to see you. Uh, what are the benefits of worshiping God and what are the disadvantages if we don't worship? Can we miss out on a blessing or something from God. Thanks. Uh, yeah, good question, Jari. Um, what are the benefits of worshiping God? I think, first of all, the benefit that I see has to do with your heart and your attitude. So the Bible says it's, it's God's desire that we would be thankful in all things. So the benefit of being thankful is the way we look at the world. We are not feeling entitled. We're feeling like we've been blessed. And so we want to be thankful for all God's given us and the great provisions that God's given us. And so you begin to look at the world different when you are thankful than when you're not. And I think the same thing happens with worship. 
And I don't think we worship for us. We worship for, for him. We worship so we can express our love to him, which I think should be, should happen because we desire to, because we want to. And as we worship him for who he is, we begin to see ourselves for who we are and we begin to trust him more for who he is. And so I think that's the benefits that come from worship. Now, this is within the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at this because on Wednesday night, we're in the book of Revelation and we have this worship that comes from the elders before the throne. And I want us to take a look at this and and uh, the, as the angels sing and all the worship that takes place. And I want to look at um, what worship is and isn't and, and, and encourage us to be worshipers and what happens to us. So um, the disadvantages, if we don't worship, we are not really seeing God clearly. We're not, we're not drawing near to him. I think when you raise your hand, the Bible says, let holy men everywhere lift up their hands praying. And when you raise your hands in prayer, it's like saying to him, I want to be closer to you, or I want more of you, or I'll receive what you have for me. So there's a lot of different ways in which we can look at it. And we'll be talking about those, Jari, uh, within the next couple of weeks from the book of Revelation. We're going to look at um, all the angels in the Bible, the different kinds of angels that are in the Bible. This coming up uh, Saturday night out of Revelation 4. Then we're going to talk about worship and what worship is this coming up Wednesday night, both this Wednesday and the next Wednesday. Um, Lord willing. Okay, if nothing happens that I'm not able to teach. All right. So thank you very much for your question, Jari. It is a good question. We have a question from Sally Richardson. And Sally has a question about a Christian committing suicide. Uh, question. I've been told that if a Christian commits suicide, they lose their salvation, period. I lost a Christian friend to suicide. Her balance of mind was disturbed. Surely she hasn't lost her salvation. Surely she hasn't lost her salvation? Question mark. Um, I'm sorry to hear that, Sally. It is incredibly tragic, and I have done the funeral of both Christians and non-Christians who have committed suicide. And I believe that the mental state of an individual can be off balance. Sometimes they're thinking wrong because of sin and just, just the way they've done things. Sometimes there's a mental issue that's there and they end up taking their own life. So the thinking is someone commits suicide. They're killing someone in the image of God because they're killing themselves. The Bible says thou shalt not murder. They don't have a chance to, to, re to confess, to repent. And so they can't be saved. Uh, the other thinking is, is that a Christian would never kill themselves. Um, and so they can't be saved. I think that both of those, those, both of those thought processes are flawed. I think the first one that if you kill yourself, you can't repent. It's what, what if you have some other sin that you can't repent from? And so I think that as a whole, that's just flawed. I think you could be so, and I want to be careful with the words that I use. There could be such a mental issue that a Christian could, could get to the place where they think the only way out for them is to take their own life. It's so wrong. It's so, it's so um, devastating to the people that are, are left behind. And it is an absolutely unloving thing to do for other people. And if you're listening to this and thinking about 
as a Christian and thinking about committing suicide, live your life for Christ. Give everything to him. Live, live for him and for that reward for the future. And is it possible a Christian could be in such a mental state, so disturbed that they take their own life and still be saved? Yes, I believe that's the case. And I don't think I'm giving people the right to commit suicide. And I would want to be very careful that you wouldn't think by listening to this that it would be okay for you to commit suicide. I also don't want to lie to you and use some kind of manipulation. Yeah, you kill yourself, you're going to go to hell. Um, the truth is, we don't know. If you, if you have genuinely made a commitment to Christ and you are thinking properly, you're not going to take your life. So if something's going on and you're a Christian who's thinking about taking your life, then get some help. Start by talking to a pastor, talk to a, to a Christian psychologist, talk to a friend. Why are you thinking this way? You're a believer, you're a Christian, but you think it would be better for you to kill yourself because there are all kinds of things that speak against that within the scriptures. Um, I, I would not put your friend in hell, Sally. Um, whatever, we, we don't know all of the circumstances that happened. I don't know whether you know all the circumstances that happened. Maybe nobody knows all the things that were going on within her mind and how sound of mind she was. But we do know that the Lord judges according to the knowledge that we have and that the brain is physiological. And so there could be a damage to the brain and that God would have mercy based on that. All right. So I hope that's helpful. And as I said, if you are listening to this and you're thinking a Christian thinking about committing suicide, your thinking is flawed. Get some help. So you can think rightly. So you can begin to be an asset for the kingdom of God. God created you, chose you, and called you. Okay? Um, so uh, Kimberly, Empress Kimberly, who asked the question at the end of our last Q&A says, um, that's amazing, Pastor Robert. In the same passage, it says, whoever shall believe on him shall be saved. Amazing. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's just taken out of context. And as I said, whenever you take a passage out of context, you're going to end up doing violence to that passage. When you start looking at this is talking about this whole section in Romans is about Jews who think they're saved because they're descendants of Abraham. And now he's pointing out it's those who believe not the descendants of Abraham who are going to be saved. And Jesus made similar statements as well. All right. Uh, we have a question from Tim. Tim says a uh, question. Hi, Pastor Robert. Uh, reference to 2 Thessalonians 2.7, when the rapture occurs, does the Holy Spirit still remain in the world um, uh, during the tribulation period? I'm, I'm going to say, I'm going to go off the top of my head and say yes, okay? Um, the Holy Spirit does. The church doesn't. So that's what, that's what we're talking about here. Uh, and... Let me just give you one of the reasons that I think that the church does not. And that is because in Revelation chapters 1, 2, and 3, the church is mentioned, I don't know how many times, half a dozen, a dozen times maybe, maybe more. Letters are written to the church. And then in chapter 4, until in heaven, the church is not mentioned again. During the tribulation period, the church is not mentioned once. And when they're no longer mentioned, it says, I saw a door standing open in heaven and a voice like a trumpet saying, come up here, which I believe is the rapture, why you don't find the church in the tribulation period. That's just one of the reasons. 
but I think that. Um, and so uh, here it says, and let me just go ahead and put this up on screen for you, Tim. Here it says, for the mystery, this is 2 Thessalonians 2, 7, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. Now, I think that's telling us a couple of things. I think, and although the rapture is not the beginning of the tribulation period, the peace treaty of the Antichrist with Israel is the beginning of it, but we will be taken out of the way. And I think the restrainer is that we are the light and the salt and the Holy Spirit is in us. It's not just the, the, the power and authority of the church is that the Holy Spirit has filled us. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit. By the way, I believe in gifted by him, and I believe that the gifts are for today. I don't believe, I'm not a cessationist. I believe they are for today. I just supposed to, I just believe they're, they're to be as the Holy Spirit wills and done decently and in order. And when the church is taken out of the way, now the Holy Spirit in the church is not restraining. People will still get saved because there's tribulation saints, all kinds of them. You just got to go to Revelation 15, where on the sea of glass are people that resisted the mark of the beast and the image of the beast and the, the Antichrist, and they're all standing on the sea of glass. They came out of the tribulation period. They got saved. Um, but so the Holy Spirit's still working, and no one's going to be able to get saved without the Holy Spirit. But he's not working within the church. We have a specific job as the church. The word ecclesia is an interesting word. I heard someone say one time that the church is like the Old Testament synagogue, a place to gather. Now, I don't know that that's just what the synagogue was, but I know it's not just what the church is. Jesus, though the, the Greek word is ecclesia. Athens had an ecclesia. It's a, it's a city council. And we are an ecclesia, the church. And a city council had power. They had power to declare war, to choose leaders, to to the uh, to direct money to certain jobs we have power on this earth to bind and loose things we have power to be able to call out upon his name and to see him move when we call out upon him the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much and we are the ecclesia of this world and that's absolutely amazing that we are all right so um let me see if I go back here and look at it. So yes, I do believe that we are, that the Holy Spirit is the restraint, but the Holy Spirit will still be here. Okay, so thank you very much. I appreciate that. Uh, we have a question from Annika. Annika says, question, Jesus tells the church of Thyatira that he will give them the morning star, Revelation 2.8. Was Jesus referring to himself? If so, why? is he likened to the morning star? What does the name mean? Um, yeah, so the Bible says that he is the bright and morning star. Let me, um, let me find that verse for you. I know it's in the end of the book of Revelation. Just can't remember the reference right now. So I'm just gonna take a moment. He is the bright and morning star scripture. All right. And so it looks like it is Revelation 22, 16. So let me go ahead and go there. And uh, we'll come back and we'll answer your question once we read this. Revelation 22, 16. Revelation 22, 16. 
All right, so this is Jesus speaking. He says, uh, and put it up on the screen for you. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. So Jesus is the bright and morning star. So when he says in Thessalonians that he is, I mean, excuse me, in the beginning of the book of Revelation to the those in Thessalonica, I'm going to uh, uh, give you the morning star, right? Then I will give to them the morning star. He's saying that he's giving himself to them. Now, the morning star speaks of who he is. The morning star is the first star that you see in the morning, and it's a reference to Venus. So Venus is the bright and morning star. Now, this has confused some people because the word for Lucifer in Latin is Venus, is morning star. And so some have been confused by Isaiah 14, 12. In fact, I watched a, a program yesterday. They were talking about Lucifer and they went and they showed his name there and um, using the King James Bible came up with 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 that name. Um, and I, I'm going to Isaiah uh, 14 now because I want to show you this, that it was a mockery of Satan to call him the bright and morning star. It was God mocking him and you see that clearly here in the passage. All right. Um, and so I'm going to put this up on the screen for you here as well. All right. And now I've, I've, I've put up the amplified version because it helps us just to kind of see how it's, it's drawn out. It says, um, how you have fallen from heaven, star of the morning. That star of the morning is what is translated. I'll read it in King James here in a moment is what's translated in the King James and the new King James as Lucifer. It's Latin for morning star. And then it says, light bringer, son of the dawn. So God here, how far you have fallen from heaven. He had said, I will put, I will make my throne like the most high's throne. He wanted to be like Jesus. He wanted to be like the morning star, but Jesus is the bright and morning star. And so he says, how you have fallen from heaven, like a, like a star falling, right? Oh, son of the morning, light bringer, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the ground. You have been weakened, the nations, the king of Babylon. Uh, but you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. That would be the bright and morning star. And I will set on the mount of the assembly in the parts of the north. Now, let me just go ahead and go back here again to verse 12. Let me go back to the King James Version. And here we find, it says, right, the fall of Lucifer. So they're using it for his name. How you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. But we know now that that's morning star. That's what's said. So he's mocking him. How you have fallen, O morning star, son of the morning. You are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. You have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregations on the furthest side of the north. And it goes on talking about the pride of Satan. So 
this has confused some because of this and um, you will find videos this way you got to be careful what you watch which will say that jesus is lucifer and they use this to try to make the statement because in revelation it says on the bright morning star and then when you read um, like the nasb or one of the other versions in fact i think i've got the nasb up here um really quick let me take a look there um yeah so it, it literally says that so the nasb is probably the best um i think it's just the best translation to study with okay so here it's kind of it really takes it's it's word for word it's really done well um how you've fallen from heaven star of the morning so again it's the morning star son of the dawn uh, how you're cut down to the earth and it goes on so we do see clearly that jesus is the morning star satan was being mocked for it which i love his name isn't lucifer i love that we don't know his name i love that we don't know his name all these movies are like lucifer it's like yeah well you guys are wrong you, you don't even know his name all right so um thank you Annika, for your question hopefully i didn't get too far into the weeds there i'm getting back over into isaiah 14. So we have a follow-up question from Tim. Uh, Tim says, follow-up, sorry, uh, sent too soon. Does the Holy Spirit remain in the world during the tribulation? Right. And I knew that's what you were saying, Tim. Yes, the Holy Spirit does. Uh, because no one can say Jesus is Lord without the Holy Spirit. That's Old Testament, New Testament. The Holy Spirit's got to be working together for you to be saved. Um, it just so happens that when we're saved, the Holy Spirit comes inside of us. I don't know what's going to happen to tribulation saints if they are going to be part of the church, if they're not going to be part of the church, uh, maybe there's some information out there that would help us to understand that and know that. Um, we are in our study of the book of Revelation. We'll be chasing down everything that we can chase down. We're about to get to Revelation 6. We're not that far from it. Um, maybe two or three studies, and we're really going to be diving into the book of Revelation. All right. So yes, um, thank you for the follow-up. I appreciate that. All right. Uh, so we have a question from Kara. Kara says, uh, so when someone of a Christian faith or the souls go directly to heaven to be judged, if they pass judgment, do the souls go right into heaven? Then what happens after that? All right, Kara, thank you for your question. And I, I kind of think I get why you're asking the question the way that you are. So there's a passage that says it's appointed once for man to die and then comes judgment. So it would sound like it's bang, bang, you die and then judgment, but it's not. Uh, when, you, when, you're, when you're reading through the book of Revelation, you see that judgment takes place at the very end when there is the second death. The second death is the resurrection of all of those who did not believe in God, who did not receive the light that they had been given and believed in him by faith and they will be judged for what they do. So what happens now when, when someone dies who's not a Christian is that they go to, I think still, the Old Testament place of Sheol. This is kind of a mysterious place of the dead. Sheol is used to mean the grave sometimes, and it's used to mean the place where the dead are conscious, conscious at times in the Old Testament. And I think Jesus clarified this when he told the story of the rich man and Lazarus, one was in torment and the other was being comforted by Abraham. And that the one that was in torment was there waiting. It's a place of waiting for the judgment to come and take place. 
if you are a Christian, to be absent from this body is to be present with God. And in what we call the intermediate state, Kara, the intermediate state is that which happens to us from the moment we die until we are glorified in the resurrection. Resurrection, rapture, it's the same event. But when, when we are, when our bodies are glorified. So in the intermediate state of a non-believer, they go to, to a place, a holding place where there is torment. And for those who are with Christ, they go directly into the presence of God. We also know that God is fair and God doesn't treat everybody the same. So there's no reason for us to think some are beaten with few stripes and some are beaten with many. There's no reason for us to think that that place of torment will be the same for uh, Hitler as it is for somebody else. It's a place of fairness, um, but of, of a real horror, especially during the days before Christ when you could see the the comfort of those who are being comforted by Abraham. All right, so I hope that helps. I want to read your question again, see that I get here. So when someone of a Christian faith, um, so when so when someone of a Christian faith or their souls go directly to heaven to be judged, if they pass judgment, their souls go right into heaven. Yeah, so that doesn't that 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 doesn't come into play. What you what you may you make the decision here. And whether or not you 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 live for him, it's appointed once for man to 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 die, and then comes judgment. And so there's not a judgment to pass. There's it's not bang bang. You know it happens. It happens. All right. Hopefully that's helpful. And you can ask a follow up question if you have a follow up question. All right, Cara. All right. Um. All right, so just see so you guys are still talking some about Calvinism. Yeah, it's probably a topic that we'll be talking more about as well, um, maybe even interacting with those who are Calvinist. Um, it seems, you know, it was on a decline. You had in the early uh, 21st century, you know, the young and the restless. You had Mark Driscoll, you had um, uh, several other the Acts 29 guys who are Calvinist, and Mark Driscoll has since rejected Calvinism and some of the other ones. Uh, but it always, it, it comes in at such an intellectual level that it seems like those who are bright kind of get swept away by it. And I think that's because of the way they're approached, uh, kind of as if this is, people who are smart see this and people who aren't don't. And I just think that's the way they're approached. And uh, they end up believing it. Um, but a lot of people turn away from it. And a lot of people are turning away from it now um, only about 20% of evangelicals today are Calvinists. That's a number I have no evidence or proof for, all right? It's just a number, I think, <laughs> which might mean nothing, by the way. All right, fact check these hands says, um, like a marriage and eating meat, do you foresee pets being forbidden in the future? Huh, pets being forbidden. Uh, fact check these hands. Um, would that be because having control of an animal would be bad. And I don't know that I see marriage as being forbidden as much as marriage being done. There's nothing to think that we don't have a close relationship with those who we were married to here or our children that were our children here that we'll still know and love and interact, just not in the way that we do uh, here on earth. Eating meats forbidden in the future 
Um, I wish we would have put a passage down, fact check these hands so we could take a look at this. I don't know that Jesus sat down and ate. I don't know that eating meat is gonna be, am I, am I missing something? Is there a passage that says that? Maybe, so I don't think there is. Could be wrong. I've been wrong once. No, no, I've been wrong a lot more time than one time. All right, so um, pets forbidden in the future. First of all, I think there'll be pets in the millennium, for sure, because you have people who are living their lives and the lion will be laying down with a lamb. And I think the interaction between animals and humans is gonna be a lot more and a lot more mellow, like what God wanted in the beginning. So I do think that there will be this relationship between the two during uh, the millennium period. As far as going up into heaven, the God who created animals, will there be pets in heaven? Uh, yes or no? I think the, the real honest answer there is, I don't know. And I think that's, that's the real honest answer. People come up with all kinds of answers for that. Um, but um, I think that is uh, the honest answer. All right. So thank you very much. Uh, fact check these hands. All right. I appreciate you. I appreciate your question. So we have another question from Empress Cameron. I used your question to open up the show, but you have another question. It looks like it's on Calvinism as well. Uh, thank you, Pastor Furrow, for your answer on Calvinism. John 15, 2 is the fruit spoken of the fruit of the Spirit. I was told it was a ministry which I can't do. I'm taking care of my elderly parents. Why would that be a ministry that you can't do? Right, let's go to um, let's go to John 15. And see if I can figure out. Were you told this, um, Kimberly, that this is something that you can't do? John 15. Verse two, I'm gonna start in verse one, obviously. Okay, so this is great passage, right? Jesus is the vine and we're the branches. When we get to verse two, I'll bring it up on the screen here. When we get to verse two, we'll take a look at what it could be that you can't do, all right? I am the vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away and every branch that bears fruit he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. All right, it, did, did we get the right passage there, Kimberly? Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. Let me just answer this like this is the question. John 15, two, bring it back on here again. Um, maybe you mean another passage. Uh, but I'm just gonna answer it as this is the passage, okay? So thank you, Pastor Robert. Um, John 15, two, is the fruit spoken of the fruit of the spirit. I was told I was a, um, it was a ministry which I can't do. I'm taking care of my elderly parents. All right, well, I think, you know, yeah, you know, the Lord bless you and your, and your elderly parents as you take care of them, all right? And I think it's the right thing for us as Christians to be, living our lives and helping other people. Um, is this the fruit of the Spirit? No, it's fruit. It is, um, and I don't know, I don't know how anybody could read it that way. I'm going I'm to go from the top again here and try to read it as if it's the Holy Spirit. I am the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit does not have the Holy Spirit. He takes away. And every branch that bears fruit has the Holy Spirit. He prunes it so that it may have more fruit, more of the Holy Spirit. Um, I just don't read it that way. That the fruit here, I th 
are they saying that because Galatians talks about the fruit of the spirit being love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the fruit of the spirit. That's not the spirit. That's the fruit of the spirit in your life. And I can see them making a connection between those two. Uh, I, I would see fruit in a more, a broader sense here. I would see it as being fruit like the fruit of, of, of the good fruit that comes from a life that's walk, abiding in Christ. So like you said, you are ministering to your parents and you're just doing what Jesus said to do and you're bearing fruit. When we have compassion on somebody who's hungry, when we help someone who is in need, when we do the work of the gospel, when we preach the gospel, all of these things are fruit that abound to our account. And he prunes us. If, if we don't bear fruit, it's evidence that we're not saved. That's how I'm reading this. If we don't bear fruit, he cuts it down, throws it in the fire. Now, there is a reading where people talk about lifting it up rather than cutting it off um, so that every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away, he lifts up, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit and maybe this reading, he lifts it up, comes from the once saved, always saved, which by the way, I lean towards once saved, always saved. Once you are genuinely saved, you will always be saved. Um, but maybe that's the reason that they look at this. Um, if we read on here, and let's, well, let's just go ahead and do it. I think this will be our last one for today, unless I can do something quickly here. Let's just read on here. He says, you are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Remain in me and I in you, just as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself, but must remain on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in them bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown away and the branch is dried up and gathers them and throws them into the fire. So that's why I don't like the lifted up reference because it sounds like, okay, at the first part, he's just caring for the vine. If vine's not bearing fruit, he lifts it up so it can bear fruit. And those who are bearing fruit, they, he prunes so that they bear more fruit. But now it comes down to a vine that's being cut off and being cast away and being burned up. So I'm not so sure that he's trying to make any statement here about once saved, always saved, but he's making a statement about bearing fruit and how he responds to those who bear fruit and that we need to have the fruit in our lives. And James would say that. James would say, show me your faith um, without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. Because James was fighting a different enemy than Paul when Paul said we're saved by grace through faith, not by works. Paul was fighting the legalist and James was fighting the, the, the people who were saying, I don't need to do anything. I'm, I'm a Christian, but I don't, need to, I don't need to live anyway like a Christian. So they were fighting two different enemies from it completely. All right, uh, Kimberly, great question. And if you can clarify what you mean by that, if someone told you it's a ministry you can't do, I just, I don't see a ministry in there at all. I just see every Christian being represented there. All right, so we have one minute left. Um, hopefully I can do this. Uh, Kevin says, question, I heard someone say the rapture will take our souls only. Our dead body shall remain. I do not understand how scripture could teach that. Some have said the resurrection of our bodies is later. Thanks, Kevin. I appreciate your question. Um, yeah, I'm with you, okay? 
Uh, my wife brought up something really interesting. Last time we had a conversation about whether or not our clothes are left behind in the rapture. And she said, well, in the rapture, it says in 1 Corinthians 15 that we're changed. This body puts on incorruptible. This mortal puts on immortality. Another place says we're going to be like Christ. And we're going to be we're going to be changed and meet the Lord in the air. First Thessalonians chapter four. So that's not just our souls. If in fact, Kevin, it is it says the opposite. So the person who says it's just our souls is not reading first Corinthians. But what Kathy said was that Jesus, when he was raised from the dead, left the grave clothes there. So he must have been clothed in a new garment. And maybe our clothes will be left behind because we're like Christ and his grave clothes were left behind. When, when she told me that, I was like, that is looking at scripture. That's how you look at scripture to try to figure out is, could our clothes possibly be left behind? And um, it's, they certainly were with Jesus because they looked at the grave clothes that were there. But yeah, Kevin, I can't see it being just a soul only um, and that the, the body would be resurrected later in the resurrection passages, and I've, I spent a lot of time in them, okay, speaking from a very informed position here, um, there's there's no way the passage says the resurrection is later. If you find the passage they're talking about, we'd love to take a look at it. So if you come back and you can just put it follow up instead of question, and then, you know, put the verse that they use to say that the body's resurrected later, or that our soul is only resurrected I would love to look at that. But sometimes people say things, you know, they don't, they don't have any evidence for it at all. All right. And um, I certainly will take a follow-up question from you. Uh, all right. Uh, so uh, I'm just kind of looking here to see uh, other questions we've got. Uh, looking to see if we'll, what we'll take a look at um, here. Uh, thank you for answering. Um, decreasing birth rate being judgment and mercy. Um, all right. Thank you. I appreciate that, Albert. Uh, no problem. Um, moral economics forum, climate activist. All right. I'll take a look at this later to try to figure out if, um, I'm going to use one of these for the first question uh, that we have for our next Q and a, which will be this coming up Wednesday. Uh, it's been great hanging out with you guys. Uh, good questions. We're having some good, deeper, um, theological, but not just theological, just kind of life practical kind of questions that I think are going to be really helpful for those who are listening to this podcast. And I really appreciate your thoughtful questions. I think that they help are, are going to help and allow Practical Christian Living podcast to be able to minister in a far greater way uh, because of that. All right. So love you guys. Stay close to Jesus. Uh, abide in him and let his word abide in you. Delight in the Lord who will give you the desires of your heart. Walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. We've got a service in less than an hour now. That'll be starting. I'll be teaching in about an hour and 20 minutes. And uh, uh, we are going to be talking about, um, in the book of Luke, the things that happened around the cross and their significance. The darkness, the veil in the temple being torn in two. The centurion saying, truly, this was the Son of God. We're going to be talking about all of those things as we continue our study line by line, verse by verse, through the book of Luke. And we will get to the burial next weekend. All right. So God bless you guys. Love you. I'll see you later on. I'm signing out.